Thank you, Natalie. We'll call him James, not his actual name, but a good friend of mine. I was preaching with the mask on. Good friend of mine who I really respect and love, have grown uh, from James's ministry. Hopefully, he's grown a little bit from me. And uh, just really love him and pray for him on a regular basis. And he has served a, a Christian organization for a number of years, uh, over a decade. And he was sharing with me, this was, I would say, maybe three years ago, four years ago, that he had suddenly, things in his ministry had, had turned and taken a dramatic change for the worse. For reasons unbeknownst to him, he was unsure why. He had been in the organization, has been in for a long time, so was very high in the organization. Only had three executives, the president and two other leaders above him. And for some reason, they decided it seemed very evident that they wanted to get rid of James. And they started to do things that were putting pressure and trying to get him actually to quit or to move on. In fact, some weird accusations came forward that uh, James, even though they were kind of out of left field, he tried to address them with humility and transparency. Then in that name of that, they decided to demote James from his position and actually reduce his salary. And then they promoted someone that James had been mentoring for a number of years in the position. This all seemed very odd to me because from an outsider's view, it seemed like James was doing so much of the heavy lifting, that, that he was doing this, this kingdom work. And from an outsider, from my perspective, I was like, what in the world? Why would they want to get rid of James when, when the fruitfulness of his life and ministry was so powerful? I don't know if it was jealousy or, or what, but there was something going on. And uh, even to the point where I, I said, you know, James, why don't, why don't you just resign? I mean, he, he was also concerned. It was, these things were, were bad, but also he was so bothered by the lack of integrity and transparency. I mean, if it was a secular organization, okay, but the, these were, were Christian folks, and James' expectation was so much higher. There was even a rumor of one of these executives of, of sexual impropriety. And I was like, James, why don't you just leave if that's the leadership? And he said, Eric, because I, 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 I love what I do. I feel like I'm making such a significant kingdom impact. I, I, I don't want to let go. Secondly, I feel called to this organization beyond the leadership. And then finally, God hasn't loosened me. I was like, all right, I, I'll pray for you, James. So started praying. James also, because uh, he's a really spirit-filled Christian that believes in the power of prayer, he had a whole intercessory team that prays for him. And I said, I'll, I'll join them in prayers for you to resolve because we just don't know how, if they're going to finally be able to push James out and remove him. Must have been maybe a month later after this conversation, 
that um, the president suddenly resigned and announced that he was moving to another organization. It was uh, really out of left field. Again, it, was, it sent shockwaves through the organization. There was a great surprise. I called up James. I'm like, that's good news. He's like, not really, right? The, the two lower are probably in line to replace him. Well, it wasn't long after that when one of the executives had been struggling with family issues, uh, health issues, and he desired, uh, decided to retire early. I said, James, that's good news, right? He said, no, really, this third executive, he's my immediate, he's probably gonna become president, he's the, the one that I've had the most difficult difficulty with. A couple weeks after that, that executive he was the youngest and the healthiest of the three. He was jogging. He had a heart attack and he passed away. What do you make of that? I just told you how I experienced the story. I didn't tell you any conclusions there. Does your view of God allow you to connect what transpired in that story with the activity of God? I was taken aback. I'm going to stay on James's good side. <laughs> right? As to know. And I've pondered that and wrestled with that. And I share that story because I believe that the, the church that we're going to look at this morning, Thyatira, if you would turn with me to, again, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in uh, verse 18. There are some words from the resurrected Christ Jesus Remember, this is John. We've been walking through the seven churches. John is on the island of Patmos. He has this experience of the resurrected Jesus. Jesus shares words with John about the particular churches. We're seeking to learn and grow and apply these principles to our lives and to our faith. And the words of the resurrected Jesus in this, for this church are particularly harsh. I remember reading them as a young Christian going, does my view of Christ Jesus allow these words? Do I, is my view of Christ, do they include these words that are shared? So these are words again to the church of Thyatira, and I, I want to challenge you all to take this in and have open heart, not a calloused heart, and allow Scripture to speak to us afresh this morning. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished 
bronze. Again, going back to the vision of Christ, the burning eyes, he sees all things, he has this penetrating gaze, the feet of burnished bronze that he'll make his enemy a footstool. He says, I know your deeds and your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So the Christians in Thyatira, they're doing well. There's much that he's saying, well done, deeds, love, faith, service, perseverance, and I'm seeing growth. You're, you're doing more. You're, you're learning more. You're pressing in. He, and so I want us to hear, he's saying, well done. And yet there's this next word that I really probably wish wasn't in scripture, nevertheless, right? Nevertheless, here's the other side of the coin. I have this against you. You tolerate. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and of eating of food sacrificed to idols. You see, the, those were the two crucial aspects in the culture of the early church. Sexual immorality, idolatry. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So, here's the, the challenging word. I will cast her on a bed of suffering and will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. In other words, if you jump back to the blessing, to the deeds, the love, the faith, the service, the perseverance, he's saying, you're doing well. I'm not going to add to that. Keep going. Keep living your faith in that way. But he's saying, but I do want you to test, not tolerate. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious, to the overcomers, and, uh, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and I will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Here's a star. Here you go. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's do a double check again. If you have ears, would you, would you 
So this might be from you. Well, another, another thought, maybe this is what we can do. I don't really like these words as much as the other churches, so we're gonna pass out scissors and just cut out this section of scripture. Does that sound like a good idea? After the James story, absolutely not, no. Really, this is a story that we have to take in. Part of what Scripture, the purpose of Scripture, is to help us and reveal and teach us who God is. And if we simply stay with the parts that we like the most, then we're going to form God into our own image, likes, and desires. And that is not a good thing. By the way, did you know that I don't just preach all the things that I'd really like to preach? In fact, we have a teaching team and, and we ask this primary question. We pray this question. Holy Spirit, what do you have for SEC's congregation? Right? We pray and we work that out together. That if I, it's my desire is, is to preach to you all the whole counsel of Scripture. Even the hard stuff even the challenging stuff. So we trust the Holy Spirit. Did I know that the, these words were in the seven churches when I felt led? Yes, I did. Did I look forward to preaching this section? No, I didn't. All right? My first year here at SEC, I was preaching something about the second coming and about God's judgment and sin. And this sweet, sweet woman came up after the service and she just said, Pastor, my God is a God of love. And I said to her, my God is a God of love as well, but he's also a God of justice. And in hindsight, I wish I would have amended my words to her slightly. I wish I would have said, my God is a God of love as well, and within that love is both justice and mercy. And I challenged this dear saint to stay with us and allow scripture to form and shape her understanding of who God is is and to her credit she did until she went to be with the lord in glory that's my challenge for us this morning would you allow scripture to mold and shape and sometimes challenge our view of god let's start with first john 4 1 i think we have it on the screens here it's where remember the author of john first john second john third john and the gospel of john is the same author as revelation the same inspired author and he wrote this about god and so we know and rely on the love of god has for us god is love whoever lives in love lives in god and god in them the apostle john we know love was central to who he was was central to his message to the congregations and yet he knew of these words 
he knew and heard directly from the resurrected Jesus that his love included the concepts not only of mercy and grace, but also of justice and judgment. And really, he knew, I would assume, as an inspired author, an apostle, he knew that the testimony of Scripture is that God is not either a God of justice or of mercy, but he is both. A lot of you know the the grace and truth matrix. There is a number of crossovers with here. I thought it would be valuable for us to pull back just a bit before we make applications to recognize that God is a God of justice and mercy. Can we begin with justice? All through Scripture, the revelation of the character of God is that he's a God of justice. Psalm 56, the psalmist says, And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Throughout the scriptures, God the Father is pictured as a king who rules and reigns, and the cornerstone of his rule and reign is righteousness and justice. And when he established human kings in the Old Testament, like David, he calls them to rule in his way with justice and righteousness. We're told in in Hebrews 8, referring to Jesus and his kingship, it says, but about the Son... He says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. That was the center, is the center of Christ Jesus resurrected, ruling and reigning this idea and concept about justice. And if you think about it, if you reflect on it for just a moment, We really all desire God to be a God of justice. And if he were not, we would be upset. This is very helpful to me to think about justice. In, in, well, oftentimes we think of it in a negative way. Would you think about it in, in this only justice being about harsh punishment and declare, de- declaring um, punishment for sin? And yet, the Hebrew word is mishpat. And it has this idea of putting things right, of putting things in order of correcting and addressing all that is wrong with the world. Don't we want a God who addresses all that is wrong with our world? Not necessarily for our lives, but for other people, right? That's how it works, yes? Like when David would pray for justice and praying for others, David is that classic case. Listen to these prayers, Psalm 7, 6. He says, Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God. Decree justice 
Again, David praying, you Lord Almighty, God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. Those are some powerful prayers. Have you ever prayed that way? I have prayed that way. Whenever we experience a wrong or an injustice, we know, we rely that God is a God who sees everything, his gaze penetrates, and we get to cry out, God, this is not justice, this is not right. We get to pray those prayers. Now, some would say almost paradoxically or intention is this idea of a God of mercy, right? This is just as predominant in Old and New Testament, maybe even more. Listen to Micah 7.18. Who is God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but instead delight to show mercy. Guess what that word mercy is, that Hebrew word? It's the one I talk about the most. Chesed, right? That, that mercy, that goodness, that favor. Guess what Hebrew word that David uses in his prayers when he's praying about himself? It's not mishpat. It's mercy, right? He's praying, Psalm 69, uh, 16, Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love, in your great mercy, turn to me. When he sinned with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, does he start it with a prayer for justice? He's no idiot. No, have mercy. Yeah, that's how we do it. Comes to our enemies, what do we pray? Justice, God. I think to have both in view of God, both for others and ourselves is so crucial. Look at Psalm, uh, we don't have this one on the PowerPoint, but listen to Psalm 33, 5. It says, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. There's that word, mishpat. The earth is full of his unfailing Chesed, goodness and love. We do have that on the pop. Right? That, that, that combination, the, the, the fullness, amazingly. Fast forward to the New Testament and think of the cross of Christ. And this is that part, a central part of the beauty and the depth of the cross of Christ, that on the cross of Christ, both the mercy and the justice of God come together and kiss for our benefit. One cannot look at the cross and say, God is not a God of justice, for he fully punishes sin by allowing his wrath to rest 
on Jesus Christ. One cannot look at the cross and say God is not a God of of mercy because he allows his forgiveness, his goodness and grace to rest on all who turn to Christ Jesus. As the hymn describes the cross, Jesus hanging says, Grace and peace like a mighty river poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Who is this God? We can't let go of either side of justice or mercy. Real quickly, look at this matrix and think through, and I I want you to think about your view of God. That our view of God, it's meant to be high justice and to the left, high mercy. If we view God with full justice and yet lower, minimize his mercy, we end up missing his compassion, his love, his chesed, especially for our enemies, especially for those who have wronged us. If we our view of God is low or we minimize both mercy and justice, that lower left hand, well, we're just missing God. We're not allowing, go to that next quadrant, okay? We're not allowing the scriptures to inform our view of who God is. If we're high on mercy, and I think many of us are in this quadrant, but low on justice, I think then oftentimes we're missing the, the holiness of God and we lack that reverence for him. Scripture, these scriptures are for us that we would see God in the fullness of his justice and the fullness of his mercy. And we would walk knowing God. Now, why do I spend so much time on this is because if we get to application, I think there are things directly related to this application. Return to these harsh words regarding Jezebel, the prophetess, the would-be claimed, self-proclaimed prophetess, and her followers, right? That, that Jezebel, probably most commentators think it wasn't actually her name, but there's an aspect in the church of Revelation where, where John or the resurrected Jesus is dealing with prototypes. So assumedly the church knew exactly who Jesus was talking about, but he identifies her as a a would-be prophetess that's operating in the spirit of the Queen Jezebel from the Old Testament. And that you go back in the story of Kings, 1 Kings, see that she was a wife of Ahab. She was Canaanites and she killed 
the prophets of God. And she ushered in uh, Canaanite worship and idolatry. And by labeling her Jezebel, Jesus is saying, this is what she's doing. And the words are harsh in part because I believe that what she was doing was worse than the Nicolaitans that we just looked at. Right? That Nicolaitans were, were compromising and adopting Christian principle or uh, cultural principles with Christian principles, but the level of deception that Jezebel was doing was greater. She was claiming to speak for God. She was probably claiming that if you follow me, if you listen to the revelation coming from me, well, these are the deep secrets of God. And I'll show you really how to live. When in fact, again, the resurrected Jesus says the so-called deep secrets, and he rightly names those. These aren't from me. These are deep secrets of Satan. She's sowing seeds of lies and deception. Now let me ask you these two questions, super important. Do you see any mercy and grace in the words of the resurrected Jesus toward Jezebel and her followers in these words? Do you see any? Look at verses 21 and 22. Listen again, we're, we're taken aback by the, the harshness of the words, but verse 21 says this, I have given her time to repent. But I argue there's mercy there. Given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Jesus is saying, my desire is not that they would remain in that place of lie and deception. I'm giving her opportunity and opportunity to repent of that immorality. I've known leaders, I've known leaders that have been fallen into sin, and I would call forms of idolatry and false teaching, and I've seen people, Christians, men and women, go to those leaders and through in the name of Christ offer opportunity and opportunity to repent. And yet they have not. The heart of Christ Jesus is not that we would face the consequence of our sin, but that we would repent. But let me ask you this question as well. Is idol, idol, uh, adultery, sorry, is adultery a victimless sin? There was probably spiritual adultery and physical adultery happening. So if you think about the context, there were probably spouses 
and children, mothers and fathers, that they were walking with the Lord in this church, that they were on a good path, and yet through her teaching, through her deception, they were pulled into sin. And you probably had wives and husbands. You probably had mothers and fathers crying out to God and saying, God, do you see what's happening? Do you see what Jezebel is teaching and doing? God would not be a God of justice if he left that sin unaddressed, if he did not answer the prayers of his people. I've spent so much time because I believe this application directly flows from this. Let's Let's get to it. We are called to be a people who reflect God's justice and mercy. It's not just that we recognize this in God, right? We were made in his image. In fact, the benefits we're about to get to, he desires and invites us not just to worship him as a God of justice and mercy, but to be a people of justice and mercy. I'm going to blaze through these. These are so powerful in the Old Testament, these prophets, minor and major prophets. Listen to Isaiah 5, 7. It says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in, unfortunately, past tense. And he looked for justice. He's looking for justice in Israel. And it says, but saw bloodshed. He used to delight in them. For righteousness, he looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress, people saying, help, God, this isn't right. These are your leaders, God, and look at what they're doing. Don't you see this, God? He's looking for justice and righteousness. Amos 5, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Hosea 12, 6, but you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. Zechariah 7, 9, this is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Micah 6, 8, this is one you want to memorize. This is one you want deep in your heart. He has shown you, O oh, oh mortal, what is good. He's taught you the life to live. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Do that. Live that. Friends, you don't want someone because of an act of injustice, an act 
uh, of your ripping them off or denying them or hurting them or, or making claims or gossiping about them in an unjustified way uh, of sharing words. You don't want someone crying out to God because of you saying, God, justice, do you see this? Will you deal with Eric? Boy, I don't want those prayers. Right? God's desire is that we would resolve and live as people full of justice and mercy. How those we live those out together, it is a paradox, there is a mystery. We need the spirit, spirit day to day, moment to moment to, to figure out how those are applied, but we live those together. Now, look at verse 28. In, in a somewhat mysterious way, he says, to the, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. There's, there's this concept that isn't preached enough is that, that part of the Christian inheritance is that we will rule and reign with Christ. That, that we will, some think it will be in the millennial kingdom, some think it will be in eternity, but really I want you to try and apply this the best that we can, all of our areas of leadership and authority that he's given us today in this moment, we, we, we wield authority with Christ. That's a, a testimony all over Scripture. Matthew 5, 5, right? He says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 1 Corinthians 6 is an interesting where Paul is speaking to the church, and they were having disputes among themselves, and so they were dragging each other in front of secular courts on petty things, and Paul says this to them. He says, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Many of us are like, no, we did not know that, Paul. Will judge the world. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases like this? He's saying this is part of the Christian life. How you wield authority, how you lead, how you argue for justice in your own life and all around us, how you handle mercy, it's part of the call. And then finally, I will also give that one who overcomes, who's victorious, the morning star. What does that mean? I, you, you put the star in your pocket, thanks God, that's awesome. The best that I could make it of it is in Daniel, when Daniel talks about us receiving the kingdom, it says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And in the New Testament, Philippians 2.15, so that you may become blameless and 
pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. In other words, God is saying, as you become people of justice and mercy in this broken world that communicates justice and mercy in oftentimes unbiblical ways, in unhealthy ways, but as you live and communicate true justice and true mercy, you will shine like the morning star. That's part of your inheritance. That's part of your calling. Would you reflect for just a moment, thinking how interesting the very first church we started, anyone remember the city that we started with? Ephesus, yeah? And their issue was they had, there was a false apostle among them, and they challenged that teaching of the false apostle. And God said, well done. And yet, what were they doing? They had lost that first love of Christ. Yes? In many ways, this church, Thyatira, is the opposite, the mere image. They were still loving Christ well. They were still persevering. They were still serving well and would be rewarded for all those things in this life and in eternity. And yet, they had not challenged the false teaching, the false practices in their own community of faith. And I take so much comfort in him saying, listen, you're doing well. You're, you're growing. Keep doing. I want to encourage us in all the ways that we're seeking the Lord. Don't miss his affirmation and his blessing. Don't miss his words to you that are saying, well done, there's, there's a reward. Keep it up, be strong. And yet at the same time, would you hear his correction in whatever way that looks, like maybe you're not living in a way that's reflecting God's justice. Perhaps many of us are there. Would you hear his word of loving correction? Maybe some of us are not living in a way that reflects mercy and grace, especially to those who we would consider our enemies. Would you hear his loving correction? Would you pray with me? I thought we would just take a little bit of time in prayer before the Lord to pray Micah 6, 8.
I'm going to read it and let Micah 6, 8 sink deep within us. He has shown you, O mortal, men and women, Christians, followers, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Lord, would you help us to be a people of justice? Lord, when we see things wrong in our lives, our personal lives, when we are perpetrating things in any way, would you convict us and help us to respond? When we see injustices in the world, would we be a part of righting all things wrong? Lord, would you help us to be a people who love mercy? Would you help us not to be stuck in treating people how we think they deserve to be treated? treated, what what their actions we think they deserve. Lord, would you help us to give people what we do not think they deserve, just as you have treated us. Lord, would you help us to walk humbly, allowing you to teach us who you are, not for us in in pride or arrogance or egotism, demanding that you be this kind of God. You would stand. Would you stand for the benediction if you'd like to go great if you'd like to sing the final song please remain we'll we'll leave the live stream going would you go seeking to walk humbly with your God to reflect his mercy and grace his justice and righteousness We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God bless you.